Hello, and welcome to the Panzer Podcast. My name is John Burgess, and I will be your host today as we deep dive into all things tanks. All right, let's see if I still remember how to get on with this whole thing. I'm just kidding. It really hasn't been that long, though I know the pain of waiting on a podcast you follow and when the regular schedule is missed or mucked up or otherwise interrupted. It kind of sucks. Though I'm sure everyone must realize that at some point, shit happens. And I have to say, shit has happened. Nothing bad, nothing negative, nothing really to worry about. No, just real life comes at you really fast as you kind of I guess, stumble through or progress through adulthood. Career-wise, everything is going splendidly. Uh, But with that comes, uh, you know, with that kind of growth comes more responsibilities, which means more time focusing on those areas rather than keeping my nose inside of a book about tanks. So, you know, then I can spend a further two weeks writing an episode to bring it all to bear for you wonderful folks. Like I've said before, this is truly a passion project of mine. I love tanks. I love this community. And I truly intend to continue the series to the bitterest of ends. Rest assured, I am not going anywhere. At least, not anytime soon. The Panzer Podcast will deliver. It just may take a little longer for the episodes to be created and ultimately released. For this, I must apologize, but I have to be a realist here and recognize when I am not going to be able to deliver the quality of podcast that I believe you and I both deserve. With that said, you can expect one to two episodes per month. At least one I am hoping I can pull together a two episode, you know, a two episode month here and there. But we are shooting for quality, not quantity. Enough housekeeping. It's good to be back with all of you fellow Panzer podcasters or podcast listeners or anyway, my fellow armor enthusiast. Okay. Let's dig in. When we last left our narrative, we had just escaped from the desert training center that General Patton had envisioned. But, as we all know, the actual war was still furiously raging around the globe, and the Brits, who have been in it since zero hour in September of 1939, were not in the business of designating whole swaths of land to a training center for armies to learn how to, well, be an army. Instead, the Brits were busy teabagging Hitler's wacky attempts to disrupt and destroy the British war effort. However, by the time the M3 medium tank rolls around, the British have already survived the Blitz, the Battle of Britain, Dunkirk. Albeit, they were taking some L's with the fall of France, Not entirely the fault of the British, but still a loss. You know, you had such things like the Battle of Eris uh, and the general nonsense being carried out in North Africa. The point I'm getting at here 
is that the British were full on in this war and truly have been fighting around the globe. Commonwealth troops from as far as New Zealand to India to South Africa to Canada were involved in the war effort. And by now, the not-so-subtle alignment of the American war industry was beginning to bear some fruit. With the war raging on globally, it was of great concern and probably an immense anxiety that Nazi soldiers stay off the British Isles. Something that was fortuitous enough to have happened. Not for naught, the Nazis really did try to soften up the British, but they and their stubborn leader, Winston Churchill, had many other designs for the Nazi. Chiefly that they eat shit and die. Which, of course, is, spoiler alert, basically what happened. Now, obviously, in 1940-1941, that prospect is not as well known as it is sitting comfortably at my desk in 2023. I've always said that when we look back into history, that we must put on our proverbial historical context lenses. Which, if I'm being honest, is something I stole from a history professor some time ago when I was lingering about in college. But it has stuck. And it is a great ethos to follow, as it helps me get into, I guess, a different mindset. I will never fully understand what it means to exist in the United Kingdom in 1940. And even with thousands of pages read, ink spilt, interviews observed... We will only ever scratch the surface, so why even bother? Well, for those of you who have had the opportunity to play tabletop games like Dungeons & Dragons, uh, Pathfinder, Warhammer, etc., and even plenty of non-tabletop games, this is, this is not an exclusive thing, but we want to avoid the meta when we go back in time. Context is important, you know, we know how this ends. People in 1940 did not know how or when this ends. Okay, Context is important. The entire, I mean the entire M3 medium tank program is a project that was basically born out of the notion of, oh fuck, we don't have a tank big enough to fight this war. And in 1940, that is a huge problem. Huge, like, existentially huge. But realistically, whatever the Americans had decided to build would probably have been sufficient as the war years wore on and the industrial production capacity of the Allied nations was realized and turned up to maximum freedom, which ultimately crushes the Axis powers and would have done so Probably, without much question. Could it have taken longer? Could it have been shorter? More deaths? Less deaths? Sure. Those are always going to be those little variables and stray random number generator events that occur throughout battles. That's why when you play war games, you use dice. You can have the best odds, but there's still random shit that happens. But strategically speaking, the Allies had this in the bag, even if they did not necessarily recognize that from the get-go. 
I don't want to wax poetic about what-ifs and what-haves. We already know how the story ends in 1945. This whole tangent is to bring the world of 1940 armored theory and invention into a little bit more of a contextual vision. The Brits needed these M3 medium tanks and desperately. As mentioned above or earlier, the war would not reach the shores of Britain. The skies, yes. The shores, not so much, thankfully. Due to this low risk of any sort of land engagement on Britain herself, most of the M3 medium tanks produced for her would be sent immediately to the Middle East to be brought to bear on the German and Italian forces in North Africa. Quote, The first M3s to land on English soil were three grants that arrived in late September 1941 which was after other British M3s had been shipped to the Middle East. The vehicles landing in England were used for testing and training, including the very first M3 built by Pressed Steel Car Company. End quote. Nothing like collector item 001 out of 500 to be used as a training bed vehicle for the war. I kid, obviously, these were tools of war and were treated as such. It is still kind of amazing to me that the first of something wasn't placed in a showroom at pressed steel or something, uh, but who knows. When it comes to war over posterity, I think the needs of the war are going to take precedence. Since Britain was essentially going to be the jumping-off point for the Allied invasion of Europe, a few years out to be sure, but everyone knew at some point they'd have to swim across the channel to defeat Hitler himself. And because of this, all manner of Allied troops would be stationed in Britain. As such, from 1941 onwards, British, Canadian, and American troops would train on the M3 Grant while stationed in Britain. During the summer of 1942, another 252 reconditioned M3 Lee tanks were sent to the UK from the Chester Tank Depot. Most of these Lee tanks were used as armored trainers, though some were converted into canal defense lights to help ward off any Nazi invasion attempts. More on that later. Speaking of the Canadian Armoured Force, which was all but non-existent at this point, thank the pre-war U.S. Armoured Force of some, you know, what, 1,020-year-old outdated Great War vehicles, take that number and then reduce it by a lot. Um, you know, the Canadian Army simply did not have the funding, nor really the reason you know, any sort of justifiable reason to maintain some great armored force during the interwar period. Remember, calling it the interwar period is a little disingenuous because the people living during that period would not have been, you know, would not have considered, hey, we're living in the interwar period, like calling the Great War World War One. The people who lived through the Great War didn't call it World War One. They weren't expecting a sequel. Uh, Anyway, I, I just find that 
I don't know, funny isn't the right word, but <clears throat> anyway, again, this was no failing of the Canadians. It is just reasonable practice. Why on earth would you spend the money to create from the ground up everything a nation you know, would need to create to have an armored force when the Balfour Declaration and the Statute of Westminster had been finalized in 1931, which it, this, you know, not, not to go too deep into this kind of stuff, but this essentially, this is what created um, what is what I like to call, or not what I like to call, what, what is commonly known as the Commonwealth of Nations. So it confederated Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Newfoundland, because Newfoundland was not part of Canada at this point, and later on in 1934, it also included South Africa. This, this further solidified the mutual defense of nations with the Ogdensburg Agreement in 1940, which now included the United States. So for Canada, essentially, she was in a sphere of allies and defense agreements. So a homegrown armored force was not something that was sitting high atop the list of defense needs. You know, there's no threat of invasion from America to the south, and then on either side of her are the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean. And if you think about it, even on the Atlantic side, the closest nation to you is, I would probably not consider them an ally at this point, but the Soviet Union, who was not necessarily threatening to come swim across the Bering Strait and invade Alaska and, you know, the, the northern parts of the Yukon and Canada. Anyway, <clears throat> I do, you know, I do want to point out that, however, the Canadian Army, they were not unaware of their duty to contribute to the overall war effort. And as such, they begun planning to outfit an entire armor division with the new M3 medium tanks. Before they could get started, this would require Colonel James Ralston, who had been recently minted as the Minister of National Defense, and his associate, General Harry Crerar, who both went off to merry old England in November of 1940 to discuss the future of the Canadian Armored Force. The two men met with Anthony Eden, Britain's Secretary of State for War, he would later, and actually very quickly here, become the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, and essentially Churchill's deputy. This was fortuitous gathering of the minds, and on December 17th, Eden told Colonel Ralston, quote, We would like the Canadian government to provide an armored division as soon as possible, to be equipped with M3 tanks ordered by the United Kingdom in the United States of America, end quote. This request by Eden on behalf of the British government was born simply out of Churchill's desire to increase the fighting power of the army, specifically from an October 15th cabinet meeting. Quote, At present, we are aiming at five armored divisions and armored brigades equivalent to three more. This is not enough. We cannot hope to compete with the enemy in numbers of men and must therefore rely upon an exceptional proportion of armored fighting vehicles. Ten armored divisions is the target to aim for in 1941. End quote. Okay, simple enough. 
at least on paper. Now, I don't normally concern myself with census values and what have you, because in a modern army, usually the size is kind of small compared to the armies of, say, the Great War or, you know, for instance, the Second World War. Just to give some perspective of what is being asked here, in 1940, Canada's population was roughly 11.5 million people, and the army contained maybe 250,000 of them, or just over 2% of the population. This is due in part to the Canadian government authorizing a massive increase in the military the moment Germany invaded Poland. Obviously, not every single one of the 11.5 million Canucks were available for military service. For comparison, in 1940, the British had about 1.6 million men in uniform out of a population of about 41 million, or 4% of their population under arms. This number would eventually swell as the war wore on for both Canada and Britain. The reason I bring this up is that to create a brand new you know, division out of whole cloth, which could range from 6,000 to 25,000 men, though the Canadians did not organize their divisions that big, uh, we could safely say that the government was requesting a formation of about 10 to 12,000 men uh, you know, an armored division complete with brand spanking new M3 medium tanks. This meant increasing the army size of Canada by 4%, which again, this is not nothing at this point in time. Uh, I will say this about Canada. You know, they were fucking down for the cause. And historically speaking, the Canadians do not fuck around. When asked to contribute, they go full in and do not let up. 20 years prior to Hitler's bullshit, the Canadians sent over a million troops to fight in the Great War. They paid dearly for these contributions. They suffered about uh, 100,000 casualties, 42,000 of which were killed in action. Regardless, the Canadian government on August 13th of 1940 authorized the creation of the Canadian Armored Corps, which bore unto us the 1st Canadian Armored Brigade. The Canadians were in. Colonel Frederick Franklin Worthington was in command, and their new home would be in Ontario at the famous, and still to this day operating, Canadian Forces Base Borden, also known as CFB Borden, or in French, nope, I'm not going to do it. Sorry, not sorry. Fighting Frank, as Colonel Worthington was known, had a rather interesting military career. He ran around as a mercenary in the Nicaraguan army during the early 1900s. Eventually, he wound up in Cuba and ultimately Mexico during one of their civil wars against Generalissimo Porfirio Diaz who was basically running like a straight up, like a military junta or a dictatorship. It was, if you're looking to get into the revolutions of Mexico, I highly suggest listening to uh, the revolutions podcast. It's 
out of control. It's there's a lot that goes on there. But uh, this this little bit of a revolutionary foray was it was short lived. As fighting Frank, he got wounded. Uh, he ultimately was returned to Canada, which was quite fortuitous for a man like Worthington, because as he was just beginning to become healthy enough, the Great War broke out, and he was once again in the thick of it. He served in the Machine Gun Corps, where he fought and held his position at Vimy Ridge, a quite famous Canadian Army victory. A rather tough and rather bloody battle, but a victory all the same. Returning after the war as Major Worthington, he was awarded the post of Commandant of the Canadian Armored Fighting Vehicle School located at Camp Borden in 1938. Canada had only recently acquired its first and second armored fighting vehicles, the Vickers Light Tank from the United Kingdom. This number would expand to a whopping five-fold the following year when the Canadian Army acquired ten, count them, with two hands, ten more Vickers Light Tanks. These, of course, were mostly for training purposes. According to Larry Worthington's biography of F.F. Worthington, Fighting Frank was on the forefront of trying to modernize the Canadian Armored Force and create a well-oiled fighting machine, which ultimately he kind of he would obtain. C.F.B. Borden was born out of necessity during the Great War in 1916 where the Canadian military dug miles and miles, or kilometers and kilometers, worth of trench lines, barbed wire, gun emplacements, and every bit of nasty shit one might find on the Western Front to help train up new troops destined for France during the Great War. In 1917, Camp Borden was further expanded and became the birthplace of the Canadian Air Force, where both Royal Naval Air Service and the Royal Flying Corps pilots were trained. During the interwar years, the base was further again expanded, becoming the largest permanent Canadian military base in the entire country, a record the base still holds today. Schools were established for all sorts of portions of the Army, Signals, armor, infantry, service corps, medical, dental, intelligence, and eventually, nuclear. Though, that goes a little bit beyond the Second World War era that we are discussing today. Just know that Camp Borden was, and still is, the primary military base in Canada. With all of the pieces seemingly falling into place, the division was authorized, a well-suited leader in place, an ample-sized base to conduct training. It seemed like they had everything. However, the only thing that was actually missing were the tanks, you know, for this armored division. It's always in the details that we find ourselves. But where there is a will, there will always be a way. The British government was at least as eager as the Canadians were to put together their armored force. But we needed to outfit the damn division before they could take the fight to Jerry. 
Britain's Secretary of State for War, now Captain David Margeson, he had replaced Eden in January of 1941, expressed Britain's desires for the newly minted Canadian Armoured Force. Quote, The War Office are particularly anxious that the personnel of a complete Canadian Armoured Division should be formed, ready for dispatch to the United Kingdom by the early autumn of 1941. They anticipate that equipment from British orders, either U.S. or U.K., would be available to equip the division, which would thus be completely trained and available for employment during the first quarter of 1942. End quote. He goes on, quote, If, in addition to the above, and without slowing up its formation, a Canadian Army tank brigade for inclusion in the Canadian Corps, could also be raised, equipped with Valentine tanks, and dispatched to the United Kingdom in the summer of 1941. This would be most welcome to the War Office. For this purpose, the United Kingdom government were entirely agreeable to Canada having priority on production of Valentine tanks and to assist, if necessary, by provision of infantry tanks from the United Kingdom's own production. End quote. The Canadians jumped on this proposition in January of 1941. Ralston cabled Canada recommending changes in the Canadian Army plans in order to accommodate the British request. Two weeks later, the plan was approved by the War Committee on the 28th of January. The Canadians quickly organized their units and sent them over as soon as possible during the spring of 1941, and by July of that year, the 1st Armored Division was redesignated as the 5th Canadian Division, better known as the 5th Canadian Armored Division. On paper, however, it was known as the former. With the majority of the British armored forces locked in battle with the Axis forces in the Middle East and North African campaigns, the deliveries of M3 tanks to the UK were rather slow, and it would not be until November of 1941 that the Canadian Armored Division would begin receiving their M3 medium tanks. To overcome this shortfall, Several tank brigades were equipped with Valentine and Churchill tanks. Having received a mere 112 of the new M3 mediums, the unit wasted little time moving into their new training facilities in West Sussex at a place known as the Devil's Dyke. The training period would last nearly two whole years, by which time the M3 mediums would be phased out and replaced by M4 medium tanks. Yes, the M4 Shermans. I know, I know, we're getting there. Another interesting fact of the Canadian Armoured Training Program was that most of the M3s supplied to them were of the M3 Lee variety, or the U.S. version though some grant vehicles would be made available for their use. Ultimately, the M3 mediums were invaluable in training for the Canadian Armoured Force, especially 
as the transition from the M3 to the M4 was fairly smooth since a lot of overlap in both form and function of both vehicles. However, no Canadian M3 medium tanks would ever see combat. Not a single one. As a Long Beach, California native, I would be remiss not to have mentioned the RMS Queen Mary. Though at this time, she was not concrete embedded into the ground near the old Spruce Goose hangar in downtown Long Beach. Instead, the Queen Mary in 1942 was being used as a troop transport. She had just departed New York on May 11th of 1942, carrying with her the United States 1st Armored Division, arriving in Scotland on the 16th of May. Ultimately, disembarked her crew of Yankee tankers in Northern Ireland. Along with the 1st Armored Division, some 200 M3 Lee tanks had also arrived to conduct further training maneuvers. Training in and around Dundrum Bay, Ballykindler, and Newcastle in County Down. The last of the division would arrive by mid-June of 1942. They would train heavily with their M3 mediums, before moving on to England in October of that same year. In just under two months, this entire body of men would load up their transport vessels bound for North Africa. Now, I know that we'd kind of, you know, we were going on about how the Brits would train with the M3 on the British Isles, or you know, how the M3 was used there. But realistically, I think we just kind of told the small story about the birth of the Canadian Armored Force, uh, and subsequently, the U.S. buildup in England prior to the North African campaign. So, what were the Brits doing? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I think we also covered that. They were fighting the bloody war. Throughout all of this training, production, establishment of a Canadian armor force, you know, the British Army was, was, they were still receiving all of their M3 grants that they could, you know, but they were directing them to the number five base ordnance depot at Tel El Kabir in Egypt, from which, you know, the final M3 grant modifications would be done, and then those tanks would just be sent off to go tackle with the Krauts. So, in a way, the Brits really weren't training with the M3s at home. The M3s were combat tanks. At home, they probably would have been training with older, you know, Valentines and other, you know, early early war tanks that were at this point obsolete. But this, you know, we're not really we're not doing the British stuff right now. I just want to let you know the M3s that the British got were basically going straight into combat. However, I do want to, you know, I do want to take us on a small tangent about how the British did actually use the M3 mediums in Britain, not really for combat. Well, sort of, no, not mostly in support of combat, but still there was some combat actions that they, you know, they kind of set up these M3s for. 
to start with, and I definitely have hinted at this in the prior season when we discussed the Panther tanks night optics, you know, that vampire system. Suffice to say, night fighting was a fucking nightmare. Uh, to tone it down a bit, one might say it was still quite in its infancy during the Second World War. But to me, fucking nightmare. Quote, The British devised a scheme whereby tanks would be equipped with narrow-beam, high-intensity searchlights, which could be used to both illuminate targets and to dazzle and blind the enemy. End quote. Thank you, Mr. Doyle. I just want to repeat that last bit quickly because I think it is fantastic, albeit maybe optimistic. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's an optimistic net positive for equipping tanks with large searchlights. Dazzle and blind the enemy. Sure, I guess that could do it. Um, gotta love it. The story of the Canal Defense Lights, or CDL for short, were born out of a completely different vehicle than our M3 medium tank, because of course it did. The British had already started experimenting with and had devised a special turret for their Matilda tank, which was an infantry tank, which is to say an infantry support tank. The way the British nomenclature works for tanks, at least during this period, is something we may have to get into. But to keep it relatively simple for the small example we need to use this for, light tanks acted like scouts or light cavalry. Infantry tanks acted as infantry support tanks, heavier and slower, but capable of taking some hits and dishing out damage, keeping up with the infantry. Finally, the cruiser tanks, which were meant to be the exploitative and faster tanks while still being able to engage other enemy armored units. Using the light, medium, and heavy descriptors somewhat works for British tanks, but not for their doctrine that's different from the Germans or the Americans. Later on in the war, the British actually began to go down the road of the universal tank as a concept, which eventually leads us to the Centurion tank and the main battle tank era that we actually find ourselves in today. That is neither here nor there. The point being is that the Matilda was a 25-ton machine, so not much lighter than the M3, the big plus side to using the M3 over the Matilda, at least in this configuration, was that the M3 had a turret and a hull gun, right? So think of it this way. The turret design of the canal defense light, which was known as the Type A turret, occupied all of the space within the turret that would otherwise have a cannon. That is a problem for most conventionally configured tanks, right, which have a hull and a turret, which had the cannon. The M3, on the other hand, could be fitted with this Type A turret alongside the hull-mounted 75mm cannon. I wish to point out that the Type A turret needed a little 
TLC to be comfortably fitted onto the M3 medium. This consisted of the access hatch being welded up, small deflectors added on the inside of the vents, and a dummy gun being installed in the front mount. By the time these modifications were finished, the new and improved Type D turret was ready to be installed onto the M3 CDL tanks. Finally, the best of both worlds, a Matilda-based CDL turret and a 75mm hull-mounted cannon. Night fighting was about to get turned up to 11, baby. Contained within that special Type D turret was a 13 million candle power carbon arc lamp. The lamp, uh, the way the arc lamp worked is you took these two carbon rods and you kind of, I think you had to like kind of touch them together to create an arc, which you could then retract the rods from each other, but the arc remained increasing in intensity until it got up to 13 million candle power. Also contained in the turret would be the operator, who had their own compartment within this turret. The operator was also tasked with manning the 7.92 millimeter or about 30 caliber BASA machine gun, which was the standard vehicle-borne machine gun that the British often used in their mechanized and armored forces. The arc lamp itself was focused through a two and three quarters of an inch by 24 inch tall slit in the turret or six by 61 centimeters. An internally mounted shutter, which was made of armor plate, uh, this allowed the operator to open and close the slit. This was done either by manually cranking or by use of the electric, you know, kind of <laughs> almost like a car window. You could crank it open or you could press the button and it would move electronically. The electric shutter, however, had two selectable rates of speed in which the shutter could open and close. This was part of the dazzling display that the British anticipated would be used to confuse enemy combatants. Further, the light was also equipped with color filters, which could be used to help mask or make the CDL tank less visible to the enemy. These colored filters apparently made it difficult to range the vehicle during night fighting operations, at least during training anyway. British troops, see, I told you we'd discuss some British training with the M3, would train on these converted M3 medium tanks at a place called Lothar Castle which was requisitioned for the war effort in, I think, late 1939-1940, finally converting much of its grounds into armored training facilities by 1941. The castle itself actually dates back to the Middle Ages. Uh, during the war, however, the war office took control of the estate and would not return it to the family until the 1950s, and during which... Following uh, a series of unfortunate financial woes, much of the castle's proper uh, was dismantled. And they were, this was done to avoid tax responsibilities. I guess taking off the roof and knocking down some walls made it like a, 
I think like a landmark and not like a living place. So they avoided some tax loopholes or I don't know. I'm not a British tax accountant, so don't ask me. <clears throat> as recently as the year 2000, some restoration efforts have been made. But the land itself is open to visitors, though I doubt very much that the war history has been preserved, least of all anything M3 CDL related. If you ever find yourself way up in the north of England in Cumbria, formerly Westmoreland, I would actually suggest visiting the castle. It's supposed to be quite gorgeous. The training vehicles here in England would have been U.S.-supplied M3 Lee vehicles alongside the Canadian M3s, which had been turned in for refit and, you know, after the training period. Generally speaking, most of the M3 CDL conversions would have been of the M3 Lee variety, as the British Army much, much preferred the M3 Grant in their capacity as medium tanks. Though you will see that some M3 Grants were converted into CDL tanks. Most of them, though, I do want to point out, would have been former Lee variants. The CDL converts would be ready for a proper large-scale demonstration on May 5th, 1942. On one such occasion, Mr. Churchill had managed to attend a one major hunt of the 49th Royal Tank Regiment was detailed to lay on a demonstration for the Prime Minister and several other members of the Top Brass. Quote, I was detailed to lay on a special demonstration with six CDL tanks for Mr. Churchill. A stand was erected on a bleak hillside in the training area at Penrith, and in due course, the great man arrived accompanied by many others. I controlled the various maneuvers of the tanks by wireless from the stands, ending the demo with the CDLs advancing towards the spectators with their lights on, halting just 50 yards in front of them. The lights were switched off and I awaited further instructions. After a brief interval, the brigadier, Lipscomb of the 35th Tank Brigade, rushed up to me and ordered me to switch on the lights as Mr. Churchill was just leaving. I immediately ordered the six CDL tanks to switch on. Six beams, each of 13 million candle power, came on to illuminate the great man who was quietly relieving himself against a bush. Immediately, I had the lights extinguished. End quote. I really couldn't help myself. I couldn't resist that anecdote. It was too good not to include. The Americans, by this point, had caught wind of the project and became increasingly interested in these spotlight tanks. By the end of September, talks with the War Office regarding the use and adoption of the CDL tanks by U.S. soldiers were well underway. The U.S. Army, wishing to produce the CDL package on their own and in the United States, which this was always going to be the way this would be done since Britain's industrial capacity 
was essentially strained producing her own goods, let alone trying to add on some orders for America. This would require complete drawings, specifications, and some examples, supplied, of course, by the British. Quote, Negotiations had been completed on November 22, 1942. Six complete sets of CDL equipment, along with accessories and auxiliary equipment to be shipped to the U.S. The power takeoff unit, necessary to drive the generator which provided the current for the carbon arc, was in short supply, and only two of those would be shipped with the notation that additional power takeoff units will be have to be made in the United States, end quote. I find this absolutely hilarious. Imagine receiving the delivery, and upon opening the package, which contained the power takeoff units, there is simply a note that says, if you want more, build them. Doyle's recounting continues, quote, The shipment was comprised of 20 boxes, with a total weight of 24 tons, occupying 1,554 cubic feet, Three sets of equipment were to be shipped by the first available fast boat, the remaining equipment on the next available. The shipment was split as a precaution against loss. Technical specifications and plans were sent by air. End quote. Very clandestine. And nothing less than I would expect from the British War Office. Speaking of the War Office... They placed some conditions on this transfer of materiel, including a stipulation. Quote, the equipment shall not be used in action by United States forces in the first instance without prior reference and agreement by the War Office. End quote. This was done in part because at the time, the CDL was still a top-secret invention. Even the name. Canal defense lights doesn't really explain what these were actually made for. And for what it's worth, the British probably had the best secret service during the war. The Soviets were pretty damn good, and they would get better towards the end and especially after the war. But compared to nations like the Nazis, who were literally, and I'm not literally, not figuratively, probably the worst spies and Secret Service folks during the war, period. The British were generally good about keeping their secrets, well, secret. The idea of calling this invention Canal Defense Lights really doesn't cause anyone to raise an eyebrow. You could assume that if you read a report that the Brits have just developed Canal Defense Lights you would probably assume that these are stationary lights and located near or along the English Channel. Not really something that you would have to worry about on the defense, right? Like if, you know, these are not offensively-minded objects. And really, a new spotlight, cool. Everyone already has those. Get this report off my desk. But the reality, these canal defense lights were aimed at allowing their combat operations to continue into the night, which again, in 1942, was relatively unheard of. I mean, the Japanese would do it, 
But night fighting sucks. And even though the Japanese did it, they weren't necessarily good at it. They just did it because it was frightening. Uh, I mean, there, there were other purposes too, but it was honestly not something that the Allies did. And up until the advent of night vision, basically night, night fighting has always sucked. And even with night vision, it's still not great. With that in mind, the British, they were certainly, you know, they were not keen on giving up the fact that they may or may not have come up with a way to conduct night operations on the ground. That is a big deal. If your enemy catches wind that you are trying to fight at night, well, shit. I better get to researching how I can fight at night too. In fact, just as an aside, the reason we call tanks tanks is because the British, during their developmental phase of the Mark I tank, the codename they used was tank. And according to George Forty in his book, the Complete Guide to Tanks and Armored Fighting Vehicles, he details that basically this, what we call tanks, it's almost a misnomer. It was used to disguise what tanks were or armored fighting vehicles, right? People reading these reports assumed that tanks, they were just a delivery vehicle to bring up water to the frontline infantry. Obviously, the fact that we now called tracked armored fighting vehicles tanks is a testament to that this ruse working as a fun little aside because of just how stupid or maybe arrogant the german secret weapons technology programs were they had this device now this device it helped them guide bombers over britain over europe whatever this device would allow pilots to fly in bad weather at night, whenever, wherever, without losing their course. At first, the British could not figure out how this was happening. The Germans were becoming a bit more accurate. They were lining up on their target and they were hitting them from altitudes that was hard for the British to de you know, detect. But they had a clue. The Germans were calling this device Wotan, okay, which in German refers to the one-eyed god Woden, or better known probably as Odin. Famously, Odin, a one-eyed god. The British were able to surmise that this device was a singular radio tower, which sent a beam that was used by these German pilots to find their heading. Without getting too much into it, the singular radio beam sent out the signal that could be picked up inside the cockpit of a plane. The signal was then returned to Wotan, and the ground crews were able to determine, with stark accuracy, I might add, the position of the plane and adjust accordingly, so they were always on path to their target. Eventually, the British figured out what was going on. They matched the signal frequency and began guiding German planes off of their targets. It gets even better. The Germans, who again believe that their top secret messages are still perfectly coded, that no one is reading what they're doing, 
They're sending radio transmissions. The Germans blamed themselves. They, the, the pilots blamed the ground crews for being shit at their jobs. And it was not until the system eventually just, the Brits eventually overwhelmed it with frequencies that, you know, the, the, the Germans could no longer even get any sort of heading from it. They sort of realized, oh, okay, the British have been doing this. The, the British intelligence services were countering this Wotan signal. And so eventually, you know, they just shut it down. Pro tip, if you're going to name your secret project after something, don't use a descriptor that sounds cool because it kind of represents the project. But like in only way someone who is in the know would know that they mean, yeah, okay, the Brits are going to find out they got your fucking number. Anyway, aside over. I just thought you ought to know that British, you know, the British took their secrets rather seriously. And having recently visited the Churchill War Museum and the bunkers in London, which again, I cannot recommend enough if you find yourself in London. Absolutely amazing. But what struck me as curious is that the bunkers underneath Westminster were basically closed in 1945, you know, and they they left they left work one day and that was it they locked the doors and essentially the bunkers were forgotten and wait a minute not forgotten because everyone who worked there still knew where they worked they still did that right but, you know they didn't just you know men in black red flashlight themselves but everyone who worked within those walls during the war kept their goddamn mouths shut and didn't reveal what they had been doing during the war for what feels like an eternity. They just didn't say anything. Loose lips, sink ships, and, you know, all that. But, you know, I don't know. The, it, it was just amazing. You know, they obviously rediscovered, and there are, there are histories and stuff that go into it. But for a long time, those people just didn't say anything. All right. <clears throat> to continue, get back. let's get back on track. Sorry. To continue with our CDL secrecy, the British were not done with their demands for how production would be handled by the Yanks. Quote, The manufacture of any CDL equipment in the United States shall be undertaken by different firms in order to maintain secrecy, the various components being finally assembled under military supervision, as is the case at the British CDL school, end quote. I wasn't kidding. The British do not fuck around. Allies or not, this was the way. The conversions of the first six tanks to the CDL configuration was done at, where else? Aberdeen Proving Ground, which at this point should come as no surprise to us as most American armor technology would at some point or another pass through the Aberdeen Proving Grounds. However, unlike past experimentation, remember, mum's the word, a specially constructed enclosure was erected inside of the engineering building. Part of me wants to think this may have been overkill, because who in their right mind working at Aberdeen is going to see this remanufacturing of an m3 medium and think anything of it other than oh they're working on some m3s 
I mean, maybe that's my own lackadaisical demeanor, but constructing a special enclosure within a building that's never been there ever before. Well, maybe I'm a little curious now. What's going on behind the curtain? Maybe that's just me. And, you know, the secrecy, you know, it doesn't end at the special shroud. No, the new stealth-assembled M3 CDL tanks were shipped to the special training group located at Fort Knox, Kentucky. We are going to kind of advance the timeline, you know, for a moment as we complete our digression into this fun little M3 variant. So bear with us. After testing and training was finished at Fort Knox, it was time to get down for business. And by business, I mean production. By March of 1943, serious discussion was underway about who would produce what. American Locomotive was, of course, selected to remanufacture the M3 chassis for the CDL project. And in keeping with the secrecy of the entire project, the new vehicle would be designated Shop Tractor, comma, T10. Further keeping in line with the British demands, manufacture of the components was to be spread amongst various manufacturers. The turret, would now be designated as the S turret, was produced by the Pressed Steel Car Company. David Doyle provides some further insight into the production processes in his M3 book. Quote, Purchase order T7541 was issued on March 23, 1943, for 485 turrets, coast defense, S turrets. This was amended on May 1st to include four additional turrets for training purposes to be sent to the special training group at Fort Knox. End quote. What really strikes me here is that the entirety of the war is raging on. And I think for most historians, or maybe not historians, but most people, when they're discussing the Second World War, you know, they tend to focus on the sexy things. The aircraft carriers, the Panthers, the Tigers, the Shermans, the T-34s, your Mustangs, your Spitfires, your, you know, your Sturmoviks. But we often overlook the mundane. Sure, the M3 canal defense light conversions were not ever going to be a war-winning effort. But what, you know, what metric do we need to use to justify their existence? You know, what do we measure success by? You know, all of these utility projects that faced the army during the war were meant to defeat a problem that either existed on the battlefield or was anticipated to exist on a battlefield. Trying to stay a step or two ahead of your adversary is every bit as important to the war as anything else. To me, what is so fascinating is to think that all of these projects that were just moving along underneath the primary focus of the arsenal of democracy, I, you know, I can't help but think of you know, all the trucks produced. Now think of all the tow hitches for those trucks, the spare wheels, the transmissions. How many, 
How many tens of thousands of man hours were used to produce steering wheels? Okay. Don't don't let me don't let me attempt to get poetic here. But it's some food for thought. You know, the canal defense lights, you know, this project, it fits right into the war effort like everything else that the allies were tinkering with. In keeping with the cavalier attitude of the Americans, the Corps of Engineers decided to contract out for their own lights. Actually, it's it's not really a cavalier attitude as much as it was a ease of production. The Corps of Engineers, um, they ordered there are these 24-inch HCD lamps, the parabola ellipse mirrors, flat reflectors, and switchboards. Further... Production order T7867 was issued to Mole Richardson Company out of Hollywood, California. Now, all of these little items, the lamps, the mirrors, the reflectors, switchboards, they were all part of, you know, the, they were used in uh, what the primary, primary business of the Mole Richardson Company was, which was in Hollywood. Think about what's Hollywood, Hollywood movies, stage lighting. This was a stage lighting company that, during the war, were producing beach searchlights that the Corps of Engineers were already happy with. And, in all fairness, the beach lights that were being produced in Hollywood were of a much more modern build than the arc lamps that the British were using in their CDL conversions. Not to mention, all of this was already in production. And furthermore... Not only was it already in production, most of this was already in the military logistics chain. The mirrors were the the only thing that kind of initially escaped American war production um, as the War Department's searchlight mirror plant in Marymount, Ohio, would need some time to retool their equipment to mass produce the high polished mirrors needed for these vehicles. In the meantime, the Americans would actually source their mirrors from England on a sort of reverse Lend-Lease type deal until domestic production was online. The cradle for the searchlight was made by American Car and Foundry. Yes, that is the company's name. They were based out of Berwick, Pennsylvania, which means we've gone from Lothar Castle in northern England, to Aberdeen, to Fort Knox, to Rochester, to Chicago, to Hollywood, to Ohio, and Pennsylvania. This really is a group effort. Finally, the test vehicles made their way to Rock Island Arsenal in Illinois, where the British, still ever insistent on secrecy, tasked the Americans with keeping the vehicles out of sight from any prying eyes. One additional American-only addition to the M3 CDL conversion was a notable extra piece of armor that was fitted to the outside of the 75mm gun housing. Think of it as an additional mantlet for the 75. This is a difference and a stark way, like an easy way for you to tell an American CDL from a British CDL. If you happen to see two in a photograph together, or if you're browsing pictures online, 
you, my friend, will be able to pick out the American without question. See, I provide you all with the skills necessary to make your friends and family question your sanity. Maybe you can use it as a party trick. Or maybe not. But I will post some pictures on Instagram so you can see what exactly I am talking about. The final training project was codenamed Project Cassock by both the British and United States, which put the vehicles through trials at their respective training grounds, Lothar Castle and Egypt for the Brits, while the Americans trained at Fort Knox and Camp Booz in the California-Arizona Maneuver Area, also known as the Desert Training Center. The training was done in such secrecy that the assigned troops were, quote, restricted from all outside contact for the first two months of training. Thereafter, for some time, they could only leave post in groups, five men per group at first, later reduced to pairs. The intent was that no man was ever to be left alone, end quote. David Doyle's book covers this aspect of training in some detail but I find it interesting that this project was so carefully guarded that the men could not even leave base for two whole months, and even then, by the buddy system? Damn. Doyle continues, quote, Secrecy of the operation was so tight that no one could be transferred out, attend another service school, or even be discharged. In the event of a medical condition which would normally require discharge, the man had to be retained in service. End quote. Remember, kids, if you sign on that dotted line, you are officially government issue, better known as property. Even with a medical condition that would normally require discharge, you would be retained? Presumably until the war was over? Holy shit. Initially... There was plans that uh, six medium tank battalions would receive the Cossack training. Quick aside, I am saying Cossack, not Cossack. A Cossack is the clerical robes a priest wears. A Cossack is a Slavic steppe nomad. Uh, at least historically, was you know they were a steppe people. We don't need to get into the history of them right now. But I just wanted to point out, in case you were curious why I was saying Cossack so incorrectly, it's because I am not. I am saying Cossack. Anyway, the six battalions were the 701st, 736th, 740th, 748th, 749th, and if you can believe it, the 750th. However, the 749 and 750 battalions were replaced by the 738th and the 739th instead. The 701st, 736th, and 748th medium tank battalions special were deployed to Europe. First to Wales, alongside British CDL units, and by August of 44, they would be sent to the Avranche area. The troops would ultimately dub the CDL tanks Gizmos, which I think is a perfect name for these oddities. As far as the combat significance of these vehicles, it is hard to really quantify how much of an impact these vehicles truly had. But reports from the front were mostly positive. 
Their first use would come in November of 1944, when CDL tanks of the Royal Artillery used their searchlights to illuminate the path for the mine-clearing flail tanks, which were then able to clear a path during Operation Clipper. I would not call this combat use exactly, but they proved useful for night operations, such as clearing mines, so that was something. The American CDL tanks, during the Battle of Remagen, would see combat use, mainly around the Ludendorff Bridge, assisting in the defense of the bridge after it was captured. The 738th Tank Battalion's 13 M3 Gizmos were instrumental in defending the bridge, because regular or vanilla, searchlights, would have been easily destroyed. The M3 medium tank's armor was more than sufficient to stand up to small arms fire and smaller shell impacts. The Gizmo CDL tanks were used to illuminate the entire east bank of the Rhine River. They were even so good that they bounced lights off of the river itself illuminating German commandos attempting to sabotage the bridge. I've got a little anecdote here from a captured German officer after the battle. Quote, We wondered what those lights were as we got the hell shot out of us as we tried to destroy that bridge. End quote. Further use of the gizmo tanks were done at the Rhine crossing at Ries for the British, and the final combat use of the CDL vehicles would happen in and around the Elbe River crossings at Lorenberg and Blockade. My final notes here about the combat impact of these vehicles was that the 10th Army in the Pacific had urgently requested two battalions of gizmos, or CDL tanks, to help with the Okinawa landings. But the invasion was soon to be over and long before any of the tanks arrived. The 43rd Royal Tank Regiment was redeployed to India some 10 days prior to the war ending with Japan. These would have been used in the upcoming invasion of Malaya, which was scheduled in 1946, had it come to that. Luckily for everyone involved, the war had ended, so there would be no further opportunity for these CDL tanks to see any more action, at least during the war. I would like to note here that apparently the only surviving M3 Grant CDL conversion is actually located at the Cavalry Tank Museum in Ahmednagar, India. And I super apologize if I mispronounce that. It seems the last place they ended up is where they've resided ever since. Okay, I hope you won't hold it against me that I kind of sort of somewhat buried the lead. I mean, of course, the British had training camps established for their own armored forces in England, but this isn't the British Panzer podcast so we'll have to cover the training grounds for British tankers in a latter episode when we cover more British tanks, say, the Valentine, the Churchill, or maybe my personal British favorite, the Crusader. However, 
All of this reading and talking about British tankers and American tankers and North Africa has got me real fired up for what I'm going to call the next episode, Combat in North Africa. I've recently finished a few more books, or a couple more books, let's be real, um, and I was dying to read about the personal experiences during the North African campaign. And boy, do I have some fantastic anecdotes and stories to share. Not to mention, I think we've carried on enough about the M3 medium tank that we can take a maybe like a little break from going into, you know, all the little minutiae of the different models or the different engine types and maybe just maybe just dip our toes into how well the M3 operated in combat. So, I again, Bear with me. Um, you know, this is coming out on July. What? Today is July the 2nd. So figure I should be able to get another episode out later this month. Um, my birthday is on the 7th. So next weekend I will be celebrating. But I will have some time to get some writing done. Okay. So stay tuned. Next episode we will be doing combat in North Africa. I want to, again, thank all of you for sticking it out with me. I know this was, well, I I thought it was going to be a shorter episode, but I think we ended up going a little long with all that CDL talk. But, you know, I needed a few warm-up pitches before we go to a full nine-inning ball game. I will get working on the next episode immediately so that I can produce a high-quality episode that dives into all of the minutiae of fighting inside of the M3 medium tank during the North African campaigns. I have not decided whether or not we will need to break it up into two episodes. I am thinking we'll do an American side and a British side, but we will cross that bridge when we arrive. As always, I can be reached via email at thepanzerpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at thepanzerpod, and on Instagram at thepanzerpodcast. We do have stickers for sale at thepanzerpodcast.bigcartel.com. And however you might be listening, If uh, you're feeling up to it, please drop us a rating, if possible. It does help us reach new audience members, and I super appreciate it. Until next time, I'm John Burgess. Thanks for listening.